your Bibles out. Well, you're going to want your Bibles, and uh, yes, we are back in Nehemiah. I actually had somebody this... Uh, thank you. I, I'm happy about it, too. Somebody this week actually said to me that uh, maybe it's time to get out of Nehemiah. And she's a really good friend of mine. She's here tonight, and so I'm not going to call her out, but uh, may the Lord rebuke her um, <laughs> gently. But anyways, now it's back in Nehemiah tonight, and we're going we're gonna to move through this book, and we're going to complete it, Lord willing. And we're in the second D of four-direction praying. So I want to encourage you to follow along. We're going to be in Nehemiah 9. We're going to be looking at a large portion of Scripture, which will satisfy my friend greatly, verses 16 through 31. And to begin, I want to share with you a story that I have shared before, but I think it's so powerful and it's so appropriate for what we're going to be looking at tonight or this today. So I want you to be hearing this. I want you to be thinking through as it's going to carry like a, like a ribbon through this sermon. May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens exploded. It was an explosion so severe. Now, I want you to think of this. It was so severe that it actually blew 1,300 feet of rock right off the top of that mountain. Can you imagine that? In a moment, atomizing 1,300 feet of, of bedrock. It flattened trees. If you can even imagine this, 19 miles away, trees were mowed down like a giant sieve. I mean, it was pretty amazing. It melted soil down to bare rock. And it left a thick layer of ash everywhere. Now, that's, that's interesting. But here's what really interests me. And this is what we're going to remember as we work through this sermon. One of the personnel that worked in the park was walking through the devastation. Now, I want you to picture this black devastation, charred remains of everything all over the place. He's walking through the park. And he sees in the midst of this devastation, this bleak horizon, he sees in this landscape, he sees this patch of grass with flowers growing. And he's examining it, and the more that he's looking at it, it begins to come clear to him that it's in a shape. And as he looked at it a little more closely, he realized this is the shape of an elk. In fact, naturalists began to be able to estimate the numbers of animals that were killed in that explosion by looking for these patches of animal-shaped vegetation. Now, you're holding that in your mind, and I want to add to it. We're, we're looking at a contrast, bleak devastation, yet in the midst of it, this, this wild grass, these flowers growing. Now, you've got to look at me. You've got to see this contrast and hold it through this sermon. Let me add to it a few ways. Okay, I'm hyper allergic to poison ivy. How many of us are allergic to poison ivy or poison sumac? Do I have brothers and sisters here tonight? I even get near it and I start to break out and it gets spreading all over the place. They say in the midst of poison ivy grows jewelweed. I've since discovered that's not always the case. 
but it's often the case. And if you could find the jewelweed and rub that plant on your body, it's going to negate the effects of that oil that's in that poison ivy. I'm going to bring out another contrast. So I've given you two. Mount St. Helens, bleak landscape, lush vegetation growing right in the middle of it, poison ivy, jewelweed, two contrasts. Let me build it a little bit more. You go spelunking, cave exploring, and you're down deep, and you see this black cave wall in front of you, and you've got your miner's hat with a light shining, and all of a sudden you see this brilliant ribbon of gold refracting, coming back to you. You see this ribbon going right through the blackness of that stone. Contrast. Let me give you one more. You're up in a plane, as I will be this week heading to a, a conference. You're up in a plane and, and you're over the desert region of our country and you are coming down and there's nothing. You're looking out the plane's window. There's nothing below you but bleakness, dryness everywhere you look. Except for a river that is snaking its way through the, through the ground, the topography, this ribbon, this serpentining river that's going through there. And again, you see the contrast between this river and this bleak landscape. Now, what am I doing with these four contrasts? I'm driving to a point, we're going to see it in our text. Because as we learn to go deep, with God in prayer. Now listen, you got to hear this. This is going to set the stage for what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. As we learn to go deep with God in prayer, we're going to begin to see an incredible contrast between our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. Now, are you able to, even in your heart, amen that? Have you ever been on your knees or on your face before the Lord in prayer and He begins to show you, He begins to show you what's in your heart that you were not able to see even a few minutes ago and before that and all of a sudden you begin to see these areas of sin in your life, these areas of unfaithfulness in your life and then in a contrast you're starting to be able to see His faithfulness. Two completely different contrasting movements. You see, a healthy prayer life, and I want you to remember this, and maybe even write it down. A healthy prayer life has a rear view mirror. Did you hear that? We've all been in a car. I want you to imagine right now you're looking up in that rear view mirror and you're seeing what you just drove past. You're seeing what is behind you. A healthy prayer life has that rear view mirror and it reveals to us, we don't like to see it, but it reveals to us our incredible capacity to sin and it reveals God's incredible ability to forgive and restore. Now, how many of you can verbally say amen that God's ability to restore is astounding? No matter how dark your life is. Now, listen, I know a lot of you. Some I don't, but I know a lot of you. I know a lot of your lives. And I know for many of you, you have suffered greatly. And some of you are suffering right now. No matter how dark, no matter how difficult your life has been. Or how many mistakes, no matter how many sins you have committed. God leaves 
His evidence of His presence, His mercy, and His goodness. They're like memorials along the path. You see His fingerprints all over. And they create this incredible contrast between unfaithful people like us and a faithful God who will never, ever leave us or forsake us. You know, before we took a break for Easter and then Palm Sunday two weeks ago, We've been looking at four direction praying and the first direction had been to look up. You look up as the Levites are leading this prayer in chapter 9. You look up and you begin to extol, you exalt, you praise, you lift up God's attributes. That's what it means to look up. The word you occurs 57 times in chapter 9 and they're referring to God. You're constantly praying God's in the center, you're praying vertically, you're looking up at him and his incredible attributes. And so the Levites are leading the people of, of God to look up and they're lifting up God's attributes. But all of a sudden, if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 16, you've got your Bibles open and all of a sudden this prayer transitions from looking up to looking back. And immediately somebody, if you're really thinking tonight and if you're really engaged, you might be saying to yourself, but Pastor Tim, doesn't the Bible say you're not to look back? I mean, don't you remember the verses from Paul forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead from Philippians? Do you remember the words of Jesus? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, why are you telling us to look back when the Bible is telling you don't look back? I mean, you remember Lot's wife, right? She looked back and look what happened to her. She turned into a pillar of salt. But in each of these, now listen, I want you to hear this. You got to hold on to this. So look at me. In each of these, the lesson is clear. You don't look back on the life that God has called you out of. You don't look back on the life that God has called you out of with a longing to return to it. Now you understand that, right? You don't look back on the life he's called you out of with a longing to return to it. That's what's in, in the mind of all three of those examples. See, the rear view mirror of prayer that we're going to unpack with three principles in just a moment, the rear view mirror of prayer, it's a look back. It's not a look back to return to a previous life, but to see how God has remained faithful even when we weren't. That's what that rear view mirror is for. So let me give you three principles that can help us remember to remember when we look back in prayer. How do you look back in prayer in that rear view mirror? Here's what I want to teach us this, uh, during this, this lesson. First principle is this. The rear view mirror of prayer can weaken our pride and bring humility. Now, who really doesn't want humility? Have you ever noticed that your life is better when you're humble? I mean, I don't know anybody that really would honestly say, I love my life when I am exalting myself. That's the end of life. You bring yourself up, you have to bring everybody else down. There's a lot of people that do it. We all tend to do it. But no one really, to my knowledge, really enjoys it. It brings an end to satisfaction. But I want you to look at the scriptures with me. And I want you to look in verse 16. But they... And our fathers, 
They and our fathers. Friends, look at me. That's just a way of saying that all throughout the people's history, there had been a pattern. And the, and the prayer is turned from looking up to looking back. There's been a pattern throughout their history. They and our fathers. The forefathers and their most recent fathers. And look what they did. Verse 16. They acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. It's like spiritual wreckage was littered along the wilderness and the desert in their wake. They're traveling for 40 years and they're leaving all of these deposits of unfaithfulness. Look at verse 26. It's going to show you another glimpse. Now remember, what we're doing is we're looking in the rear view mirror. We're praying. We're looking back. And what we're going to see often when we look back are the times that we've not been faithful to God. Verse 26, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. And they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. you got to love the Levites. The Levites are the ones leading this prayer. And they're not pulling any punches. By the way, if you ever go to a church and you've got a pastor in that church... And all he wants to do is make you feel good and comfortable and, and happy no matter what kind of a life you're living. Listen, they're tickling your ears. You don't want a message like that. You don't want preaching like that. You want preaching that's going to bring you the truth. They're going to call you on the carpet at times, but never leave you on the carpet. They're going to bring you back in grace. This is what the Levites are doing. Look at verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, one after another. Look at verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but they sinned against your rules. And again in verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Now, so far, we're looking in the rearview mirror, and it's not a pretty picture. Now, listen, let me tie it back into the four contrasts I gave you in the beginning, right? This is the devastation of Mount St. Helens. This is the poison ivy. This is the darkness of the cave. This is the desert landscape from the plains view. This is one side of the picture of the gospel. It seems like ruin is everywhere. It seems like the Levites are relentlessly aiming that mirror back to these sins. They're hammering their people. Now let me ask you some questions. Now you be honest. This is your job, by the way. If you are sitting underneath preaching and you don't put your mind into gear and you're not deliberating, you're not talking with what I'm saying in your mind, you're not praying, Lord, is, is what Tim is saying, is it true of me? If you're not doing that, then you're likely going to leave this sanctuary the way you came in. And that's not, that's not good. So have you ever acted, let me ask you, have you ever acted presumptuously? You know what that word means? It means to boil up in pride, to demand your way. Parents, if you've got little children, 
you'll know this word. Wives, if you've got a husband, you'll know this word. Husbands, if you've got a wife and if you've got parents and if you've got people in your friendships and people at work that work. Listen, we all do this. We all boil up thinking that we know best. We overboil. We come over the pot with pride and arrogance. You ever stiffen your neck to God? I refuse to bow. I refuse to take your way. I want my way. I'm not content with what you're doing, God. I'm going to find my own way out of this trial that is stiffening your neck. You will not bend it to God's rule. You ever refused to obey God? You've clearly known, I've clearly known, we've clearly known what God wants, yet we refuse to obey Him because it's not what we want. Have you ever forgotten the wonders that God has performed in your life? Have you ever let go of his amazing glory in your life? This is all what the Levites said that they had done. This is rear view mirror praying. Have you ever rebelled against God? Believing that if you just return to Egypt, it's going to make you happier than God ever could? Lord, I don't like this person I'm married to anymore. I don't like this situation anymore. I'm going to get out of it. I'm not going to stay in it until you relent, until you find a way out of it. I'm not going to stay in this family, into this marriage, until you transform. I'm going to get a separation. I'm going to get a divorce. Listen, this is all of what the Levites were doing as they were refusing to obey God. They were, were rebelling. They were trying to find a way out of what God was leading them into. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. If you don't get this part of this message and you leave here tonight only having heard what I've already said, then it would not be a good thing. So you've got to hear what I'm about to tell you. The reason the Levites look back. Now, you're listening. The reason the Levites look back, it's not to take the blame for their father's sins and guilt. Remember, your father's. Remember how it starts? Our fathers, our forefathers, they and our fathers, they're not taking the blame. It's true that God will allow, listen, some of us experience this, it's true that God will allow the consequences of sin to extend into generations. And if each generation continues to hate and reject God, they're going to each be guilty. Listen, if your generation, if you are, are perpetuating, if you are continuing the sins of your father, then God will deal with that in your own life. But he says plainly, the soul whose sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Listen how comforting it is to me. I've got four kids. And I sin. I'm not always faithful. How thankful that I am that God does not visit my sin upon my children's heads and hold them to account for them. 
But the principle that we've all heard in history class in school is at work here. Those who forget history are doomed to forget it. Remember that? Even if you sleep through history, and what was called social studies when I was a kid, even if you sleep through that, every child comes out of school knowing that statement. Those who forget history are doomed to forget it. You see, looking back, now listen, here's what it is. You look back in that rearview mirror at the unfaithfulness of the generation before us or even the unfaithfulness of your week or your day. And it reminds us of our constant need of God's intervening grace, His His help to even get us to be faithful to Him. And that mirror that we are looking back and when we see these painful mistakes, these painful sins that we've made, it produces a humility in our hearts. It puts to death the pride that is there. It begins to help us realize that should we live in the power of our flesh, we're going to slide into unfaithfulness. Yet God is faithful. That leads us to principle number two. Now look at we're looking back in that rearview mirror. The, the Levites are guiding them back. And it drives us to principle number two. The rearview mirror of prayer can reveal God's activity that we just did not see. You know, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, who's heard of them? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everyone. They went on a camping trip. And after the meal and some time around the fire, they climbed in their tent and they they went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, awoke and nudged his friend, Watson, and he asked him, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Here's what Watson's reply was. I want you to hear this. I see millions and millions of stars and Holmes asks him, what does that tell you? What is that telling you? And Watson says, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and billions of stars. And astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in the Leo position. Horologically, I determine that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, that God is all-powerful. We are all insignificant in comparison. And meteorologically, I suspect we're going to have a clear and sunny day tomorrow. What's it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was quiet for a moment and then said, Watson, you idiot. Someone stole our tent. (laughs) Now listen, sometimes we miss... The trees for the forest and sometimes the forest for the trees. Sometimes the fingerprints of God. Now listen, I want you to, want you to really zero in on this. This is the crux of the message. Sometimes the fingerprints of God are all over an event in our lives, but somehow we miss it. Listen, this is the value of the rearview mirror. This is why they're looking back. They look back, they saw the unfaithfulness. But then you get to verse 17 and you see in the middle of that, that verse what I think is one of the greatest words in all the Bible. It's the word, but. I love this word. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not 
forsake them. I want you to think of that word but in your life right now. You ready? Here's how you, here's how you think of it. Take a spatula, which flips your food over in the pan or on the grill. Think of the hinges of a door, which allow the door to open or close. The word but is a contrast word. I was having a really bad day, but I got a call from a friend that turned it around. You see that? You were going one direction, the word but turns you in another direction. You're looking in the rearview mirror and you're seeing because you're deep on your face in prayer. You're deep down with God. You've been looking up. You've been exalting Him. And He begins to show you the areas that you've not been faithful in your life. And all of a sudden, He starts to whisper with His Spirit right into your soul. But, but, I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger. I am, an ab- am abounding in steadfast love. I will not forsake you. He's whispering it deep into your soul. Throughout the whole Bible, in our own lives, we see our unfaithfulness, but God is faithful. We choose sin, He gives mercy. We are helpless, He is powerful. It's the hinge of the gospel, and you get to see the Old Testament and the New and the word but. Let me show it to you in Ephesians 2. And you were dead. Listen, this is all of us. You either were dead or you are dead. If you've not turned to Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. If you have turned to Christ, you were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. But, I love that word. Listen, we have no hope without this word. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Now you might be thinking right now, wow, he is really, really overstepping and overstressing this three-letter word. Friends, I think it's the greatest word in the Bible. Of course, the name of Jesus, the name above all names. But I think it's the greatest three-letter word in the Bible. It's the one, of the one of the most hope-inspiring words you'll ever read. It's as if the sun comes out from behind the storm clouds or rain starts to fall on drought-blighted land. The word but brings hope. The gospel is good news of the saving mercy of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen, but there's two sides to the story. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. If you don't have a preacher preaching the bad news and getting you to the good news, then all you've got is the good news, then you've got a prosperity gospel. And the death of Jesus, of which one female theologian said, it's time to get his bloody body off the cross. The death of Jesus looms in a paramount location. It's why we celebrate soberly communion, which we'll be doing in just a little bit. The bad news is despairing. The good news 
It's exhilarating. The good news is full and the bad news is so empty. When a church overemphasizes sin and drowns out the mercy of God, it's sliding into suffocating legalism. It's distorting the gospel. When a church overemphasizes grace and underemphasizes sin, it's on its way to liberalism. You hold the gospel like a coin, both the heads and the tails. And but holds them together. The word but brings them together, produces the glorious truth. And that God takes unfaithful people like me and unfaithful people like you. And he graciously brings about his transformation. Will you look in verse 19 with me? Look at God's mercy. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. He gave them a cloud and a pillar of fire to guide them. Look at verse 27. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Look at verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. There's the bad, there's the unfaithful. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. That's the discipline of God. So that they had dominion over them. Yet or but when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Look at verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Friends, let's get utterly real. That would be principle number two. Number one, you shift your mind into gear when you come to church. You've got to think. Don't put your mind in neutral. That's not going to do anybody any good. You shift your mind into gear. Secondly, just be real. Be honest. Man, I'm looking in this stuff all week as I'm preparing these sermons. All week I'm in the rear view mirror. And I'm seeing my own unfaithfulness littered like wreckage along the highway of my life. And each time, though, the Lord brings me my eyes off that wreckage with a word but and brings me back to his mercy and back to his faithfulness. Has your life been littered with unfaithfulness to God? Now, as I'm saying that and thoughts begin to conjure in your mind and memories begin to come blazing to the forefront of your mind and you remember that time you stole something, you remember that time that you spoke the way that you did towards somebody, that time that you hurt somebody, that whatever it might be, those times of unfaithfulness, do you have those times? Let me ask you a few more questions. Ready? Have you compiled a list of grievances against God? How he's dropped the ball in your life? Maybe unwittingly a list that is so deeply ingrained that you're not even aware of it anymore. Did you pray desperately in a situation that was horrible and still that dreaded outcome happened and it caused you to seriously struggle with trusting God? Friends, would you look at me for a moment? In the midst 
of those experiences, as hard as it may be to believe this truth, God never left you. And while you may not understand the answer to the why questions on this earth, and likely that's a question he's never going to answer this side of eternity. But he can persuade your heart. He can persuade your heart of his good and perfect hand that brings about his mercy and his grace and his plan. So get on your knees before God. Let him show you his fingerprints all through your life in that rearview mirror. You're going to see your unfaithfulness, but if you stay on your knees long enough, he's going to show you his mercy and grace. So ask him to show you. And keep asking until you begin to see the jewel weed, the veins of gold, the ribbon of water, the outline of his life that he was producing in you. Those are two principles of how to look in that mirror. Number one, you're going to see your unfaithfulness. Number two, he's going to show you his grace and his mercy. Let me give you one more before we close. The rear view mirror prayer can build our hope and our confidence in our God. You know, if you've not yet memorized Philippians 1.6, friends, can I ask you as your pastor to do it? Do it this week. It flows rhythmically. You can remember it easily. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Would you memorize that? Because when you're in the rear view mirror and you're seeing your unfaithfulness and he's showing you his fingerprints of his grace and his mercy and how he's not abandoning you. Listen, he's going to promise to fulfill what he began in your life. He's going to build your hope and your confidence. I talked to somebody recently in our church. It's like waves of trials are just coming against that family. It's like they begin to, you know what it's like if you've been to the ocean and, and a particularly difficult wave or big wave comes and knocks you down and you just, there's, a, there's a, a double wave and the next one before you can even get up just comes and whams right into you. This is what this family is going through, one wave after another. They've got to have the confidence restored in them as they look in that rear view mirror that he who began a good work in you will bring it, that's a promise, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20 of chapter 9 in Nehemiah. Here's what it says. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Are you looking at that? This is the Father. This is the Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father gave the Holy Spirit to instruct the people. The Father is a good giving God. He loves to give. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from whom? The Father of lights. God the Father is a gift giver. He loves to give. And he gives the Holy Spirit to his people to instruct us. You know why we need that, friends? Now look at me for a moment. Because right into your mind, you've got three enemies whispering lies. Going through a hard time this week? Where's God? He doesn't love you. He's powerless to bring about good in your life. Our enemies are whispering lies. 
We need the Holy Spirit to instruct us into the truth. This is why God gave the Holy Spirit to speak, your good spirit to speak truth into our minds. The Father gave the Spirit to do what? To instruct them. Verse 20. Jesus said, John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. That's us. He's going to guide us into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Father sends the Holy Spirit to teach us how to live in a way that pleases him. And he did not, look what it says, he did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Now, I want you to remember this. When you're reading the Bible, and you will often read about the manna. Most believe it was settling on the ground in the morning, kind of like a dew glistening over the grass. You get it and you grind it with a pestle and you make it like flour into a cinnamony, cinnamon type cinnamony. That's Burger King. Into a sweet wafer-like bread. That's what most people think manna is. But when you read about manna in the Bible, it is a direct metaphor of Jesus Christ. And you read about living water, you read about water, and it's pointing you to Jesus. And you get Jesus who himself says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and, and not die. I am the living bread. I am the manna. They came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, of me, if you put your faith in me, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's his crucifixion. It's his death on the cross. You put your faith in the crucified Savior. He brings life into your soul for eternity. He's the bread of life, of salvation. It's through his death that he brings life. And then he says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart are going to flow rivers of living water. You're going to have life. You're going to be satisfied. You're not going to want the, wor the pleasures of this world, the, the, the wonders of the soul-quenching living water of Jesus Christ is going to so satisfy you that you won't be quenched in your heart again. See, the Father gave the good spirit to open our eyes and guide us into truth. And he gave us living bread and living water of Jesus Christ to save and restore us. Listen, this is our encouragement. This is the triune God. Let me put it as succinctly as I can. Now, you got to look at me for this. You look in that rearview mirror in faith, you're going to see three persons looking back at you. And they've all got a smile. Because you're going to see the Heavenly Father. You're going to see the Good Spirit. And you're going to see Jesus the Son. They're all involved in bringing about the completion of our faith. Friends, when's the last time that you looked in the rear view mirror with the confidence to look for God's fingerprints in your life? When's the last time you got on your face, you got on your knees and you went down deep with God 
and you began to look back on your life and maybe even back on the family that you came from and the generations before them and seen these patterns of sin and all of a sudden God shows you his fingerprints that he has rescued you out of sin that he has put his life in you and his water in you to change the trajectory of your life so that the children that come from you will have a life that's different than the one you came from maybe we should get in the habit every night before we go to bed, looking back over our day and seeing boldly and courageously in that rear view mirror the things that we did that day that were not pleasing to God. Let him show us his mercy and his grace and find the hope that all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are bringing us into conformity with his image. And maybe it's time to drop your grievances against God for his mismanagement of your life and find the hope that he never left you. In fact, he never untangled his hand from yours. Friends, look in that rearview mirror. Go down deep this week. Look back, not to return to what you came from. Look back to see, honestly, the areas that you were not faithful. Let it lead you to the faithfulness of God who will never leave you or forsake you. And let it produce in you the awareness that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working in your life to bring about His plan. You will have hope. And you will have confidence when you see the triune God working together to be able to live the Father's dreams for your life and to be able to live the brother as a brother and sister of Jesus Christ, living his desire for your life and becoming the man or the woman of the Spirit's crafting. That is a promise. Can you close your eyes? And I'm just going to pray this evening. Just before I pray, let me ask you a question. Your eyes are closed. I'm not going to ask you to get out of your pew. I'm only going to ask you to be honest. Are there things in your life that you can see so clearly as mistakes and sin and unfaithfulness, but you've not yet seen the fingerprints of God? You've not yet seen that he has not left you or forsaken you. You are angry. You are hurt with God. And that hurt has led to bitterness with him. And you have learned to keep him at a distance from you. Listen, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are all speaking to you right now. Would you drop the charges? I've always been good to you. And I will complete your faith. If that's you this evening, you're angry at God, you're holding him at a distance, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? That's all I'm going to ask tonight. I see that hand. I see, wow, I see a lot of hands. Keep raising them. Be honest. A lot of hands. 
So let me pray for you, friends, my brothers and sisters. Let me pray for God's help. Father, Spirit, and Son, we pray and ask, Lord, that the balm of Gilead, one of the names for Jesus, that soothing, salving, salving grace will permeate the hearts of the ones who raised their hands this evening. Lord, would you let them spend some time on their knees this week? Move them to do that. Let them see those times of pain and difficulty. Lord, let them see not just that. Move them quickly, Father, I pray. Move them to see your mercy, your grace, your plan, your righteous right hand that never let go of theirs. Lord, let them see the fingerprints of your fingerprints, your hand all through their lives. And Lord, let them see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three of them, the triune God, are all at work in their lives to bring about the completion of their faith. Because you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, give them the strength to drop the charges against you. Give them the strength to drop their arms that are holding you at distance. And to let your grace envelop them and wrap around them. Father, would you be so kind to do that? Spirit of God, would you be so kind as to instruct these truths deeply in their mind? And Jesus, would you be so kind to put your flesh, keep your flesh on and touch them deep, deep down in their heart as one who can empathize and understand all of our struggles? Father, we ask for this. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.